not just in Snohomish, but in Seattle uh, and beyond. We are incredibly grateful for the goodness of God in the land of the living. God has been so much better than we deserve. <clears throat> we deserve hell, we've got heaven. We deserve sickness, we got healing. We deserve brokenness, we got wholeness. We deserve heaviness, but we got joy. And uh, we are on the receiving end of the goodness of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. The Bible says He is the Father of light. In Him, there is no shadow of turning. Which means that God has never had to apologize to you for having an out-of-character moment. There has never been a time where, you know, He kind of woke up on the wrong side of the bed and said, Okay, you know, I was a little rough with you this morning. I apologize. It, no, it's just who He is. It emanates from His presence. And as the church gathers with expectation, God responds with impartation. And in doing so, His transformative work continues in our lives. We are like seeds that have been planted in the soil of the Northwest. And the Bible says that one man plants and another man waters, but God brings increase. That we are coming into a season where God is supernaturally bringing increase upon His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we're going to take territory, we're going to take land. We're just going to believe that everywhere the sole of our foot treads, God has given us the land. God has given us not just the right, but the authority to speak into spiritual places. And in doing so, rearrange principalities and powers. And tonight we're just going to see another example of God binding the spirit of death and loosing the spirit of life. And uh, Seattle is in need of awakening and uh, we're going to be a part, we're going to play a part in what God is doing here uh, in this region. Hey, this morning I'm going to share with you out of the Gospel of Luke uh, in chapter 5, Luke is a physician. Uh, he is an eyewitness to the things of Christ. Not only does he write the Gospel of Luke, but he also writes the book of Acts, which is the history of the New Testament church. And Luke records an interaction that Jesus has with Simon Peter that's really one of the first interactions that Jesus has with the disciples as he's calling these men to forsake all and, and follow him. And Simon Peter is a fisherman by trade. He's a blue-collar worker. Jesus meets him near the Sea of Galilee and communicates to him in such a way that Peter in that moment decides that he will leave all to follow after Christ. One of the reasons why I love the story of Peter is because all of us can see ourselves in his life. You know, I think Peter's primary spiritual gift is putting his foot in his mouth. For a good portion of his life, it seems like just about every other interaction with Jesus is a negative one. He doesn't understand what Christ is saying. Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. Walks on water, but then he begins to sink. He's following Jesus, but then he denies that he even knows him. And then on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God is poured out, God uses Peter as the catalyst to plant the New Testament church, which tells me if God can use Peter, God can use you. Well, I've denied him, and I've had a rough life, and I've gone back and forth, and I've wavered, and I've had faith, and I've lost it, and I refound it, and I just feel like I might not be qualified. But if God can use Peter, God can use you. In fact, the first one-third of the book of Acts tells us about the ministry and the influence of the apostle Peter 
as he serves as really the head of the New Testament church. The last two-thirds of the book of Acts center on the story of the Apostle Paul. But Peter's followership of Christ starts in Luke 5, and that's the story I want to share with you this morning. In Luke 5, the Bible says this, So it was as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or by the Sea of Galilee. So it was, as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, I know you know this this morning, but I think it bears repeating. Friend, his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. His word never returns void. It accomplishes everything it's been sent forth to do. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Bible says His word will remain. Hear me, the crowds didn't gather to hear His jokes. The crowds didn't gather to hear His sociological insights. The crowds didn't gather to hear His political opinions. The crowds gathered to hear the word. And just let me say this to you this morning. The way that we draw people is the way that we keep people. So let's go ahead and be people of the word. Let's let the pursuit be a place where both the spirit and the word change lives. There seems to be a new approach to the art of preaching that concerns me today. A lot of stories, a lot of jokes. A lot of analogies, a lot of hype, but only a little word. In turn, we got a lot of people who are barely saved, not at all transformed, overly carnal, and underdeveloped. We've got to be people who build our lives off of the unchanging word of Jesus Christ. The word says he created the male and female. The word says that there is only one way to the Father. The word says that we must obey God rather than men. The word says the road to salvation is narrow. The word says do not forsake the gathering of believers. And in a world that is turned upside down by every shifting wind of heresy, we must be planted on the God who both was, is, and is to come, the unchanging word of Jesus Christ. See, friend, I believe in the Bible because of 6,000 surviving manuscripts that testify to the reliability and validity of the New Testament alone. I believe in the Bible because it is the best attested to ancient document in all of recorded history, and it's not even close. I believe in the Bible because of tens of thousands of archaeological findings that confirm times, dates, and places of specific biblical events. I believe in the Bible because this book was written by eyewitnesses in the presence of other eyewitnesses. I believe in the Bible because the life of Christ fulfills over 350 Old Testament prophecies alone. I believe in the Bible because it is a collection of books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors who unanimously agree that we have a God in heaven who sent his son Jesus to make a way where there seemed to be no way. No friend, I believe in the Bible. And here's the reality. If the enemy can get you to doubt the word, he will cause you to doubt the author. 
And when you begin to doubt the author, pretty soon you find yourself doubting your faith. And when you doubt your faith, you will find a world more than happy to fill your void with things that sound good, but in the end lead to destruction. No, the crowds gathered to hear the word. I know on Sunday mornings, I don't have as much time to preach as I used to. That's why I try to pack an hour of content in about 25 minutes of talking. But I'm just confident that what's going to transform your life is not my words, but his. Because faith comes by and hearing by the word. And when we go light on the word and heavy on humanism or secularism or any sort of other failed philosophy or worldview, we are starving God's people from the very thing that they need in order to be successful in their Christian walk. The Bible says this in verse 2, And they saw two boats standing by the lake. But see, the fishermen had gone from them, and they was washing their nets. And then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And Jesus sat down, and he taught the multitudes from the boat. See, often Jesus would teach from a boat that was pushed out from the shore. The reason being is that it created a natural amplification for his voice so the crowds could hear him teach. Most of the ministry of Jesus took place in or around the city of Capernaum. It had a population of only about 1,500 people. The city of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, had a population of only about 400. 80% of the ministry of Jesus took place in this tiny red triangle on the map behind me. Which tells me this. Success and significance is not the result of going wide, but instead going deep. Jesus took 12 regular blue-collar men and developed them for three and a half years inside the geographic context of a five-mile stretch of land. And in doing so, change the known world for all of eternity. Don't tell me God can't take a group of believers out of Snohomish and impact the region for Jesus Christ. See, friend, I got to be faithful to the ground underneath my feet. And in doing so, God will open doors that no man can close. See, we all want a prophetic word that we're going to change the nations. But what if the key to transforming nations was being a faithful steward of neighborhoods? What if the key to national prominence was local faithfulness? What if the reason God loves to work in small towns is because he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Can anything good come out of Snohomish? Come and see. Can anything good come out of the Northwest? Oh, God has just begun to pour out his best wine. Come and see what this God can do. As I read that verse, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me, saying to me this, I am giving pursuit a supernatural amplification in this season. I love how Jesus invites himself onto someone else's boat and then uses it as a stage to impact humanity. Hear me, friend. Can Christ borrow your boat? 
Can he borrow your natural and use it for supernatural? Can he borrow your common and use it for uncommon? Can he borrow your talent, your skill, your influence, your gifting, your workplace, your personality, your friendship, your resources? Can you trust God with the simple and allow him to use it for the extravagant? I love this. Jesus didn't borrow a yacht. He didn't borrow a cruise liner. He didn't borrow a battleship. He borrowed a boat. A small fishing vessel whose primary function was as a vehicle of business for Simon Peter. Jesus showed up during work hours and shows Peter your place of business can be an avenue of God's kingdom if you will just let me borrow your boat. God borrows a shepherd's staff from a man named Moses. God borrows a tent-making business from a man named Paul. God borrows a clothing business from a woman named Lydia. What is in your hand that God can borrow for the great task that is ahead? The enemy works overtime to lie to you about what you hold in your hand. He says it ain't significant. It's not pretty enough. It's not polished enough. It's not like somebody else's. The enemy tries to get you so overwhelmed with comparing your talent to somebody else's that you never step out of the boat in order to be used by God. And I want you to know here, whether you got a PhD or a GED, if you will offer God what you got in your hand, he will use it for a supernatural purpose. Whether you're a multimillionaire or in debt up to your eyeballs, if you will offer God what you have, he can use it for a supernatural purpose. Whether you feel like the most talented, the most gifted, or the most overlooked, in this room if you will simply offer God the availability of your heart he will use it for an eternal purpose what's in your hand and can God borrow your boat now now, now watch how the story continues when Jesus had stopped speaking he said to Simon launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch Hear me, friend, when the master is done speaking, it is time to start acting. Some folks use prayer as a defense mechanism to mask their unwillingness to launch out. Well, God, if you would just speak to me, I would know what to do. But hasn't he already placed his Holy Spirit in your life, the one who guides you into all truth? I almost never receive turn-by-turn directions from God. Instead, he points me in a direction and then says, launch out and watch what I'll provide. Our prayers tend to look like this, if we were being honest. God, I don't want to launch out. I don't want to use my faith. I don't want to leave the shore. So please go catch all the fish, clean all the fish, and then bring them nicely, neatly, and safely back into my boat without me ever having to move. But can I tell you, friends, success looks like a lot of closed doors until you find one that opens. Success looks like a lot of hard soil until you find the ground that is soft. Success looks like a lot of no's until one day you get a yes. Every time there is a closed door, it's because God has an even greater door that you haven't ever even seen that he's getting ready to open unto you. No, the deep is where we belong. I know the shore is safe. But the shore is also shallow. 
And if the fish are in the deep end, then friend, that's where we'll go. Don't settle for the aquarium when you've been built for the sea. In verse 5, the Bible says, But Simon Peter answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. See, Simon Peter had to experience the hardship of fishing all night and catching nothing in order to be overwhelmed at what Jesus was about to do next. Listen, friend, you had to experience the dryness of the wilderness in order to appreciate the blessing of the river. You had to experience the pain of being overlooked in order to appreciate the blessing of being chosen. You had to experience the testing and trial in order to appreciate the perseverance and sustaining grace. See, God never wastes your pain. It is the tragedy of toil that prepares us for the blessing of abundance. See, I've got good news. If you feel like you've toiled all night, mercy is coming in the morning. Breakthrough, it's coming in the morning. Resource, miracles, answers are coming in the morning. Why? Because when you get a word from the master, it is impossible for it to return void. See, Jesus gave the command because he had already prepared the miracle. He knew what was underneath the surface of the water. God would never send you on a journey without already lining up the resource to see you through. I love how Peter responds to Jesus, but at your word, I'll let down my net. It reminds me of the interaction that Mary has with the angel in Luke 1. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. And the angel departed. Friend, if you've got a word, that's the only permission you need to pursue a promise. If you've got a word, you can trust that God will cause every other missing ingredient to fall into place if you'll just have the faith to cast your nets. And if you keep reading in Luke chapter 1, after the interaction that Mary has with the angel, the Bible says Mary breaks into song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary didn't have a baby. She had a word. No, the baby had to grow inside of her for the next nine months. The angel didn't show up and say, here's a baby. He said, here's a word. And she would steward that word until the fulfillment of what was promised was delivered in front of her. I want you to know this morning that worship is not the response to a miracle being produced. Worship is the response to a word being released. If I've got a word from God, I'm going to consider it done and worship until I see it delivered in front of me. When I've got a word from God, I'm going to give him high praise for the great things that he has already done. Because if 
He said it. He going to do it. And it's going to be better than I could ever ask, think, or imagine. I've got a word, so I've got a reason to worship. Oh, it's easy to worship once the miracle's arrived. But where are the people who will worship in the hallway of waiting while the word grows inside of you? See, the way that I tend to the word that I've received from God is by offering it back to him in the form of worship. God has regarded my lowly estate. He will bless the generations. Mercy is on those who fear him. This is the God who has done great things for me. I don't see it yet, but I'm going to see it soon because if I've got a word, that's the only permission I need. Now, I'd venture to say, friend, you got a word this morning. You got some things in your spirit you're still contending for and believing for. If you've got a word, you got a reason to praise. And the Bible says, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Hear me. Our job is to cast the net. God's job is to send the fish. My job is obedience. His job is supply. My job is faithfulness. His job is results. And God's version of abundance is so extravagant that I promise it will break all your previous nets. It will destroy all your previous frameworks. It will dismantle the preconceived ideas and notions. It's almost like he is saying, watch what I will do next. You will barely even have the structure to contain it. And that is a word for this church as we get ready for what lies ahead in Seattle. No eye has seen, your ear has heard what God has prepared for his people and your structure will be barely able to contain the fish that I'm sending. Now watch. Jesus wasn't surprised at the miracle, but it absolutely confounded Peter and his associates. And Jesus knew all along what lay in his future, but it wasn't the promise of future success that motivated Peter's obedience. It was the fact that the master had given his word. I don't want to obey God because he has guaranteed me future success. I want to obey God because even a bad day with God is better than the best day without him. And sometimes we hold hostage our obedience looking for heavenly guarantees. But what if we allowed God to handle the outcomes and instead we were just faithful to the process? Even if it ends different than I think, it's still worth it to launch out in the deep. Even if I catch no fish, it's still worth it to launch out into the deep. Even if that door closes, it's still worth it to knock. Even if that person don't get healed, it is still worth it to pray. Even if I face rejection in a relationship, it is still worth it to love. So they signaled to their partners, verse 7, watch. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so much so that they began to sink. When a church experiences momentum, it is simply God making up for lost time. Watch. Acts 16, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Acts 12, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Acts 10, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. Acts 8, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Acts 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. John 20, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them and said, peace be with you. 
it isn't suddenly for God, it's suddenly for us. So when all of a sudden the church begins to grow and all of a sudden doors begin to open and all of a sudden resources begin to flow and all of a sudden people start getting baptized, it is simply God making up for lost time. He is catching us up where, where he has already been. It's like he's saying, I've been waiting for you and I'm glad you're finally here. See, there's a lot of lost time for God to make up in the Northwest. And that's why you feel the way you do in this church. Everything is happening so fast. I'm drinking out of a fire hose. I feel overwhelmed. It's like every time I come to church, my seat's taken and there's a new family and the parking's worse and I don't know what's happening. And every time Russell speaks, there's a new initiative. There's a new school he wants to build. There's a new city he wants to take. God is just catching us up for lost time. In revival, God makes the enemy pay for every year he's stolen from God's people. God does that by restoring families. God does that by healing bodies. God does that by causing his church to advance. That's why this time feels so urgent, because we are in a critical moment as a people. What will we do with the oil that he has given us? That's where we're at. It's always been on God's heart for revival in the Northwest. Revival is not a new idea, it's an old idea. God's heart breaks for the condition of our cities and of our churches. And when God finds a people who are simply willing to agree with his perspective, he says, there are so many things that I have been waiting to do. And now I have found a people that I can trust with the abundance I'm sending. It feels suddenly to us. But God says, I've been waiting for so long. John Maxwell says it like this, when you have momentum, even the simplest tasks can seem to be insurmountable problems. But when you have momentum on your side, the future looks bright, Obstacles appear small and trouble seems temporary. Verse 8, the Bible says this. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I come to this church on Sunday morning, I have a Peter-type response to the goodness of God. I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. How could this even be happening? This is so overwhelming. But it is still the kindness and goodness of God that leads men unto repentance. Jesus shows up and does such an extravagant miracle in the life of Peter, that his only response is, depart from me. How could it be that you have been so good when we have been so undeserving? And that's why I'm struck by the way that Jesus teaches about what it means to be poor in spirit. He says, those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And what does that mean for us today? Those who recognize their great spiritual need. 
Come on, friend, as a believer who's followed Jesus for many years, it is my commitment that I want to need him more today than I needed him yesterday. And I want to need him more tomorrow than I need him today. I never want to get to a place in my life where God is useful instead of God being beautiful. I want to always be aware of my great need for a savior who is filled with grace and mercy, who is working on my behalf. And that's why Paul challenges the church in the New Testament. And he says, if it be God in the spirit, do not let it continue in the flesh. Remember that we're here as a result of God pouring out his spirit. We are here as a result of God drawing near to his people. He doesn't have to show up. He wants to show up. And as a church, as a people, we are entirely dependent on God's presence to do its best work. The only logical response to the abundance of God is this. I know I don't deserve this and it will never be mine. It will always be yours. In verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. You know what's so interesting about this miracle? Jesus does it twice. He does it once in Luke 5 at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he does it again in John 21 at the end of his earthly ministry. Now here's why that's significant. Let me show you. In Luke 5, the disciples are referred to as servants. But in John 21... Jesus, calling out to the disciples in the boat, asks this question. Friends, have you caught any fish? I want you to know, friend, serving will always be our activity. But friendship will always be our identity. I am not serving to gain favor. I'm serving because I have favor. I'm not serving to be loved. I'm serving because I am loved. I'm not serving to try to make God my friend. I am serving because God is already my friend. We are not working to earn his resource. We are working because we have his resource. Serving is our activity, but friendship is our identity. You have been called a friend of God and if that doesn't absolutely blow every previous framework out of your mind then you might be spiritually dead he is the only God in all of human history who allows those who were created in his image and invites them into divine friendship with the king you're a friend of God and I am too it reminds me of what John the Baptist says when they ask John the Baptist if he's the Messiah He says, I am not the Messiah. I am the friend of the bridegroom and my joy is fulfilled in hearing his voice. I need you to hear me. I've got vision for this church. I've got vision for this region. I believe God is gonna give us schools and universities and hospitals and buildings, but hear me, my joy is fulfilled, not in seeing vision come to pass, but in the fact that I know that when the crowds leave and I'm all alone in my room and I open up my scripture, my joy is fulfilled in the fact that I have heard his voice. 
And if our joy is fulfilled in the fact that he has called us friends, then even when there are things that we thought were gonna work out that end up throwing a curveball at the last minute, no, we don't operate in sorrow. No, we don't get stuck in depression. No, we don't get thrown off into anxiety and stress because my God has it handled because I'm his friend. Come on, tonight in Seattle, we're gonna see God show up and we're gonna see God show off. We're gonna make some announcements this evening that will really define the trajectory of this church for the next decade. And in doing so with great boldness and great courage, we're gonna step into the next season of God's faithfulness. But I need you to know, as your pastor, my joy is already fulfilled because I've heard his voice. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Come on, friend, let me pray for you. Let me encourage you in the Lord this morning. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to the things that you would desire to do in these moments. God, I pray that you would renew our mind in such a way that we would have your perspective on life's events. God, I pray that you would challenge us to truly forsake all and, and follow you. God, I pray that we would not give in to the fear that says, stay on the shore, that's where it's safe. No, God, you've created us for the deep and at your word, we'll cast our nets again. God, I pray that you would tune our ear to your voice. Even as scripture says, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Would you teach us your voice in this season? Would we be attentive to the way in which your spirit leads? And we say, if you will be our God, we will be your people. Father, we love you. We honor you this morning. And we thank you that you are at work. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, all God's people said amen. Amen. Friend, if you're here today and you'd like prayer before you leave, I'd love to invite you to these altars. I want to add my faith to yours.